It's affecting how we interact with tools, how we interact with devices, and the world around us is changing because of AI. So I think the opportunity right now is for designers to help shape this change. Welcome to Play in Conversations, the podcast where we delve into the world of design and explore the endless opportunities that await designers and brands. I'm Simon Martin, Head of Content Strategy at Play and Co. And joining me are Karen and Brendan Hutchison, the founders of Play and Co. Together, we'll be your hosts as we embark on insightful design conversations that inspire and inform. Ever wondered what rebellious innovation is all about? Today, we meet remarkable Liat Benzer, a true catalyst for change within Fortune 50 giants. From ASIC designer at Qualcomm to corporate vice president at Microsoft, she's been a tech industry dynamo. In Amsterdam at Philips, she spearheaded digital transformation and IoT, launching over 30 cutting edge health products, including the world's first smart toothbrush. At Microsoft, she led teams that revolutionized the market, turning the tide for Edge browser and doubling Microsoft's M365 consumer SaaS subscription business in just four years. Oh, and did we mention she squeezed in an MBA at UCLA Anderson School of Management along the way? Today, she's the entrepreneur in resident at Storm Ventures, guiding startups with AI and product-led growth strategies. But that's not all. Liat is a passionate advocate for workplace diversity, equality, and inclusivity, the pillars of true innovation. Tune in as she shares her deeply rooted ideals, resilient mindset, and knack for nurturing rebel talent to drive organizational innovation. Welcome, Liat. So great to have you. You were born in Israel, grew up in California. Uh, you started in engineering. You, cr- you climbed the career ladder. You eventually became uh, SVP at Philips. You led their digital transformation uh, and became a corporate vice president at Microsoft. You've clearly had a storied career. Let's go back to the beginning. What was the early uh, Liat like, and, and how did this career even blossom for you as a young kid in California? Well, I think um, in order to understand who I am today, uh, it probably helps to kind of understand my childhood and um, who had the biggest influence in my life, which is my grandmother. Uh, my grandmother, she was a, an Auschwitz survivor and really a living testament to resilience. I remember as a child, she would tell me stories about how she saw her neighbors and her friends stand by while they watched her family and others like her taken away. And she would say that, you know, they they smelled the air while the bodies burned in their neighborhoods and they heard the cries. They saw, they they heard, but they said nothing. Um, They zipped their lips. They look the other way. And you can imagine as a kid how hard that sort of story lands. Uh, it was like she handed me this moral bl- blueprint that I never really asked for, but but now I can't imagine living without. She made it very clear to me that silence is as lethal as pulling a trigger. So everything that I am today really starts with what I learned from her as a child. 
Uh, it's from those conversations with my grandma that I vowed that I will never be silent. And where I learned that silence and inaction leaves just as much blood on your hands. So I made a promise to myself at a very young age to never sit idly by, to speak up when something's off, to be the voice of the voiceless. And that's not just a lofty ideal. It's really my life's mission. It's the cornerstone of um, how I've grown in my career. It's the cornerstone of how I lead teams, how I raise my children, and basically how I roll in the game of life. I'm just thinking back to, you know, being a child and you're right. A lot of your earliest memories are really memories that can define who you are. And um, I think that that's an incredible story and um, yeah, particularly poignant uh, at this, you know, today. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to wear your heart on your sleeve, so to speak about that. Um, it's very poignant today. You're right, Brendan. And especially in, in the U.S., I know it's also relevant in a lot of other countries, but especially in the U.S., mm. um, the past few years have been very tumultuous uh, yeah. in, in a lot of different areas of, of equity and civil rights and um, LGBTQ rights. And a lot of that upbringing um, has played a really big role in a lot of the decisions that I've been making for myself over the past few years. I mean, without going down a rabbit hole, but how do you feel the, typically we, as, as a human, I'm kind of, time is a very linear thing and I look forward or I look backward or I look now. And if I'm Buddhist, I can live in the present and not like a dog and not really care too much about the, the past or the future. But are you optimistic about um, the future and becoming less tumultuous and more equitable to society in the U.S.? Because I have to say, when we were there, uh, when we founded Planco in 2015 and we were there for the few years before he who shall not be named fell, fell into office, um, I, I thought it was an incredibly exciting country to, to be living in. Um, we felt like anything was possible. We felt, particularly in California too, I guess, um, we've, you know, there's, there's disparity everywhere, but we felt, uh, you know, like a very optimistic, a very optimistic culture. And that's, that's something unique to the U S it's not, I wouldn't say that we don't, that that's the same in Australia necessarily or any of the colonies or any other countries. I mean, this, this, uh, yeah. So Penny for your thoughts on that, or you can say, let's just move on. <laughs> I, I do. I do actually think it's a really interesting question. Um, so I have, I have kind of multiple, multiple angles that I think about that. I would say that the, the grounded realist slash pessimist uh, in me will tell you that history repeats itself. And unfortunately, we've seen that movie again and again and again and again. And while, you know, anyone uh, who has Holocaust survival family members repeat the mantra never again, we still see anti-Semitism growing in so many parts of the world louder and louder and louder. Um, the racial challenges in the U.S. seem to be repeating themselves with some parts of the U.S. not wanting to teach you know, African American black history in schools, 
I mean, these things just don't make any sense to me. Uh, yeah. So I see history repeating itself and I, I find that very worrisome. That's kind of a very grounded, I would say, side of me. And I think we just need to be uh, vigilant and speak and voice in order to ensure that things don't keep repeating themselves because everyone has to be active to, to avoid that. On the other, on the other hand, I will say, you know, I spent five years living in Europe. I lived in Amsterdam. I ran a large organization out of Europe, India, us of engineering and product and business development. And when I compare and contrast building organizations, you know, Silicon Valley, West coast, and in Europe, there definitely is a, a different mentality. One is not necessarily better than the other, but there is very much kind of in the Silicon Valley um, boardrooms and, you know, this, the American dream of you can be anything, you can get to anything. And, and there's just a hustle, a really strong hustle culture. Yeah. That's yeah. very, very unique, I think, to to the U.S., to the West Coast, to tech. Um, I think there's value in in some of the other things that you have more of in Europe in terms of, you know, work-life balance and, and, and sometimes career isn't everything. When is enough enough? But yeah, I think the American dream is still real. My family came here for that American dream. They came to get their master's degree and, you know, we've went from having nothing to building something. So that's real. So there's, mm. there's definitely an optimism in that. But I think we need to stay grounded and make sure that we don't close our eyes to very important changes that are happening around us right now. Very interesting, uh, Liat. So, so how did that background help inspire you to become an engineer and ultimately, from what it sounds like, more of a, a, an actual business leader in terms of business strategy and less engineering? Uh, yeah, I don't know that any of that really led me to be an engineer. To be honest, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college. Uh, actually, I wanted to be on Saturday Night Live. Uh, <laughs> I, thought that, I thought that that would be my dream. But my parents made it clear that that will not be the route that I take. Good luck. And that I need to find a way to make a living. And I think there was a guidance counselor that told me if I go into electrical engineering, it's like the hardest thing and I'll have the most options afterwards. I was like, all right. So not a very inspiring story. <laughs> very, very real. That's what happened. We'd like to take a moment to remind you that Play and Conversations is brought to you by Play and Co. If you want to explore more about design opportunities, discover new insights, or connect with Play and Co. for a design project, be sure to visit playandco.com. What, what yeah. about what what was your most inspiring moment um, in electrical engineering? Because something something seemed to have happened that that led you, um, from what I understand, to uh, MBA at UCLA um, that that helped you grow your career in that in that regard. So was was there like a, a defining moment where where you kind of enjoyed the electrical engineering aspect, but you were like, mm, yeah. I want to lean into the MBA component more. Mainly what happened is when I started off as an ASIC designer, I was down in the depths of, of the ASICs, you know, of the FPGAs. I was building a tiny corner of a large puzzle that fit into a larger puzzle that fit into a business case. And while I was sitting there 
pulling all nighters, trying to make my little tiny corner of this design work. All the ones and zeros get to the right place. I was always asking like, but why are we building this? What is this for? What are we trying? Who are we trying to help? What problems are we trying to solve? And I was always asking the bigger why, where, what, how. Um, and I realized very quickly, probably within the first three or four years of my career, that in order to answer those questions, I needed to move over to the product side, either product marketing or product management. Um, and so I pined to get in front of the bigger strategic questions. Why are we building what we're building? Who are we building it for? What problems are we trying to solve? And I learned fairly quickly that when you're a good engineer, they want to keep you doing engineering work. And so it was really hard for me to be taken seriously over on the business side. So that was the reason I went to get my MBA. I wanted to open up doors and I wanted to be seen uh, as a serious player on the business side. And I did that yeah. during, uh, during those first 17 years that I was at, at Qualcomm. And for the people that don't know what an ASIC designer is, because I just Googled it, because that was an acronym I didn't know about either. <laughs> Application specific integrated circuit designer, right? So design engineer, yeah. Yeah. You're like a design engineer for circuitry. Um, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, you basically you basically are programming in a in a language that's very specific for hardware. Yeah. And you're building right. these circuits. Riveting. Um, yeah, very riveting. So anyways, I grew, I grew up at Qualcomm. I spent 17 years there on lots of different roles, you know, from, like I said, ASIC engineer to sales, product management, M&A, competitive strategy. I built out a developer ecosystem while I was at Qualcomm. And I learned a lot about the industry, mobile, wireless, semiconductors. I learned a lot about myself. I built a lot of strong relationships that I still keep in touch to in this day. And, and during those years, we helped launch some of the most influential and iconic phones uh, that the industry has since, you know, really benefited from, from the first ever Android phone, it's called the HTC Dream, to oh, yeah. the, the slimmest uh, design the world had the ever razor. seen. The yeah. Razor. With the Razor, awesome. yep. Um, the first Snapdragon-based phones. Oh wow! You're you're um sorry to jump in. Um, you're you're kind of giving me deep nostalgia here because Karen and I were living in Taiwan at the time, and we knew HTC well, a Taiwanese company, and they were kind of the pioneering company for smartphones in Taiwan at the time. So yeah, you must would have been really fun. Yeah, we went we went to Taiwan uh, quite a bit during that time. So maybe our paths even crossed. Uh, my team yeah. also developed the uh, all joint open source project for the Internet of Things. That was like the first standard framework for different brands to communicate, having interoperability across devices in the home. Um, we wow. built the first reference design for a connected smartwatch that talks to your phone before anyone had ever seen a smartwatch. I mean, it was just a really incredible time for innovation and, and firsts. But I got to tell you, it also wasn't always easy. I remember traveling to South Korea as an engineering manager very early in my career. And the customers that we were meeting, which is a mobile phone manufacturer, never made eye contact with me. Um, I had my whole team there. It was a bunch of men who actually were older than me. So the, the Korean customer would only speak to the men on my team. And 
often I was asked to go get coffee or take notes. And and really that was not the first nor the last time uh, that I experienced that. In every single meeting, I had to assert myself. I had to reintroduce myself. I had to earn my credibility in the room, which to be honest, felt humiliating just to constantly have to do that in every meeting. It was tiring, right? But over time I learned how to earn my seat at the table, how to build relationships with all of these different customers and different cultures. And the point is that I didn't get that just because I showed up. I didn't get that because of my title. It was never handed to me. Um, as a female, you had to prove that you deserve to be there. Yeah. And I remember, I remember even in boardrooms in California where I would sit around back home and the execs around me would make homophobic jokes about some of the other employees that we worked with. And I had had to work so hard to be taken seriously as a woman, as a leader in tech. Um, I was scared out of my mind to also come out as gay. So I stayed in the closet for most of my career. And experiences like that strengthened my resolve around the importance of diversity inclusion and strengthened my resolve to try to make it better for the next generation. Mm -hmm. Now, I can totally relate. I had a very similar experience in my early years, like being a female in industrial design. It was not, I mean, even though I went to school and there was a bunch of girls that went through, not many ended up continuing that career because it was very male dominant and you never were taken serious. Like I had the same thing happen. They would be like, oh, you could go get coffee and tea for the clients rather than you be a serious player in the organization. So I just kept working at it because I knew I knew I had the chops and I knew that no matter what, I can do what they can do, but probably even better. And I just, it's as hard as it is, you had to prove yourself because you were female. And that's the unfortunate thing. But to this day, I mean, like like you, it's about resilience and about being a role model. And I every moment, everything I do, I do to prove to show my daughter that this is what you can do and you can do better. It's not about like being on the same playing field. It's about being what the best you can be. And I, I totally could feel everything you were saying because I went through the same thing um, in my earlier years. And even sometimes to today, you still get a little bit of that, you know, just because you're a girl. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah. I kind of like, whatever, you know, I'm old enough, I don't care. <laughs> it's like I, I, I've proved myself to the world. I've proved myself to myself um, that, you know, I, I, I can do this. So I totally, totally resonate. Good for you. Good for you for, for fighting that fight. I think there's a lot of women that relate to that. And I find mm. that unfortunate. Do you know what I mean? It's unfortunate yeah. that so much of us resonate. I think there is a lot to be said to the fact that it is in spite of, if not because of all of the people who said we can't, that we can, because we use it as fuel to strengthen resolve. But now I'm at a point in my career where I feel a sense of responsibility to make the industry better for women, for minorities in tech. So the next generation does not need to go through the things yeah, that I've exactly. experienced. I'm on a mission to level this playing field because I've been there 
and I've done that mm-hmm. and I have a ton of battle scars to prove it. Um, I know that women and minorities need to climb higher and steeper to reach the same pinnacle that everyone else could get to because of the systemic barriers, because of biases, because of pay gaps. And I'm not even going to get onto the inappropriate behaviors that we've dealt with over the mm-hmm. last 20 years in tech. Um, so, you know, my, my mission these days is to blast some tunnels for many people that want to get to the top of that mountain for the next generation of leaders so that it's less of an obstacle course and it's more of an express lane uh, for folks that felt excluded in the past. Yeah, I love that. So, so uh, Leah, what what are some um, examples of those expressways that you've seen maybe in the last few years of, of those tunnels being blasted and, and seeing new avenues open up that have stood out for you? So the way that I think we blast the last tunnels is by lifting one another up. And so personally, I do a lot of uh, mentoring. I do a lot of sponsoring. Uh, I work with a lot of other women execs in the industry and every opportunity I have to help women, to help, to help people of color um, with leadership, board roles. Uh, I'm constantly trying to bring them into opportunities. And that's, you know, one way, one way to do it. Um, unfortunately, I think that there's a lot of lip service in the industry when it comes to this, and that's led to skepticism, right, yeah. from from a lot of folks, because uh, there's a lot of lip service out there. And you saw that, I would say, in the past year, when financially the, the shit hit the fan for a lot of companies. Um, all of the positive talk about DEI and inclusion just went out the window. And mm. many of the people um, who had it the hardest over the past 12 months are also the most recent to get the opportunity to enter these companies, right? They're, they're the last ones in and the first ones out. Mm. Um, so we have a long way to go. Make no mm. mistake about it. We have a long way to go. And I feel very privileged to have had the career that I've had and to have leadership jobs at uh, leadership executive roles at these Fortune 10 companies. But with, the, with that responsibility comes, comes this onus to do better. Do you think, uh, Liat, that that sort of rebellious um, approach um, has influenced your take on cultures, uh, particularly in the way that it promotes innovation, risk taking and collaboration uh, through a lens that others might not see? For sure, for sure. I mean, I've, I think it's part of why I've, I'm a change agent. I see things through a unique lens that many others don't see. Um, I've always challenged the status quo. The status quo has not worked for me. The status quo has often worked against me. And so if I was to listen to the status quo, I nor any of the projects that I've led nor any of the companies that I've led would have, have accomplished what they've accomplished. So in almost all of my roles, I've built what I call rebel talent teams. And rebel talent teams are teams where people have the psychological safety to um, question the status quo to ask questions. Why are we doing the things that we we're doing? 
just because it's been done this way for the past 10 years is that the only way it should be done. Um, and it's led to a lot of changes, a lot of turnarounds, a lot of transformations. And if I can jump in, that is exactly the reason that you popped up on my radar, if you don't mind me saying, and the reason you feature in our uh, business as usual report, because I love that quote. You posted a quote um, on LinkedIn at one point, and it just, it kind of caught my attention. And it, it, it was something along the lines of, ever since I was a child, my mother always told me that there were three types of people in this world. Those who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and then those who wonder what just happened. I love that last one, by the way. Um, and when it comes to the business world, I can't help but think that the rebel talent teams fall into the first category. You know, the troublemakers, the misfits, the wicked stepchildren of corporate culture. I love that. Like, I, th I think if I think back on disrupting st status quo, that's exactly what it is. You have to be an antagonist, right? You have to make people feel uncomfortable. Um, Sometimes you have to do things on the sly and uh, in kind of a, a covert mission to to either innovate or to to get or to fight for what you believe in in changing the company culture too. So it happens on a project level, but it can also happen on a culture company culture level. So yeah, yeah I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think as a technologist, it's a gift. Because the thing about technology is it's always changing. And those who can see around corners uh, and those who can recognize large shifts and disruptions are able to get ahead of it and guide yeah. those shifts. So whether it was wireless and mobile and multimedia in the late 90s and early 2000s, where we were defining what the future of uh, data, wireless data looks like and, and what smartphones should look like, or whether it was how do you get everything else connected with the early days of Internet of Things and starting to think about what does it mean to have day-to-day -day devices that you use at home from lights to thermostats to speakers? Why does that matter to be connected? Kitchen appliances, what, how does that change the interaction between product, design, company, and customer engagement models, business model innovation, um, you need rebel talent to mm -hmm. identify those changes or to today, AI. AI is disrupting every single industry as we know it. And there's a lot of people who will talk about why that's bad and it's a concern. And then there's folks like me who see this very opportunistically. Um, it is going to change how we do so much of what we do. And we need to figure out how to mold and shape and orchestrate and carve that so that it fits within our boundaries of, of ethics um, and equity and, and all of those other things and yet leverage its power to accelerate us into the next you know into the into the next century or or you know decade or whatever it's going to be I'm glad you hit on that uh, because when one of the things I think about looking backwards to look forwards, I think when you were talking through um, the IoT, uh, you know, being at the forefront of Internet of Things, I can imagine a time, I can imagine that time being, well, we don't actually know what the future looks like. We couldn't have possibly predicted 
how that was all going to manifest. And here we are again with artificial intelligence and maybe even on a larger scale. And we're all like, what What the hell does this look like for my company? What does this look for me as a professional or as a person? And so it kind of feels like, yeah, the the change agents of the next era will will definitely be the ones that can understand the applications um, and how it can serve people and and business in while balancing ethics, um, you know, complex topics like that. So um, it's funny. I, I remember. I think it was around. I don't exactly remember the date. It might have been 2008, 2007, 2010, somewhere. I was doing an interview with NPR, and they were they were asking me about the Internet of Things, and um, I remember trying to explain these potential future use cases of, you know, a light bulb that can change colors, and if you're hot, the light bulb can turn blue. And maybe it makes you feel like the air is cooler. If you're cold, the light bulb can change red and the ambiance could feel warmer. And I remember getting so much shit after that interview <laughs> from all from all from all over the place, from family and friends to colleagues and everything. Like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Why the hell would anyone do that? No one's that stupid. Like, and now, you know, what 10 years later, 15 years later. That's so mundane. That is, no one would ever even talk about it because that's so obvious. We all have these lights and they can turn colors and a bunch of them do all these things to create ambiances and energy. Back then, it wasn't that long ago, that was thought of as absolute crazy talk. And yeah. so I think there's so much of that now that um, that's what I mean. Like the ability to kind of question that status quo, look around corners, see where things might be going. Was that when you were 2007, 2008? Was that, were you at Philips then? Is that no, the whole no, that was, connection? No, okay, no. Qual, Qualcomm, also, I think a lot of the internet things all join, all seem strategy. Okay. Yeah. 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 Cause that, to your, the way that you broke that down sounded exactly like Stefano Marzano, you know, the ex CDO of Philips Design saying, oh, you know, in the future, light will affect our mood and everyone, and in Europe, everyone will be like, oh, really? Um, but, Maybe in the new world, people are like, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I digress. So, Liet, we've established that you've had this incredible career arc with a rebellious spirit. Uh, clearly, we can boil that down to rebel talent. How would you define rebel talent? And as a team builder, how do you identify rebel talent in others that you build teams with? I, th I think um, rebel talent refers to the ability to think outside the box, to challenge the status quo, to drive innovation through unconventional approaches, and to sometimes see the world through a different lens. Uh, my, my observation is that people with rebel talent tend to display characteristics like curiosity. They're, they have an openness to new experiences. They have a willingness to question existing norms. Uh, they have a willingness to question existing systems, um, and there's a there's a there's a sort of adaptability. They have this ability to quickly adjust to new situations and to challenges. Uh, you know, at Microsoft, we often talk about a growth mindset. I think 
there's a lot of that. There needs to be a willingness to, to consider alternative viewpoints, to challenge not only others' views, but also your own viewpoint, uh, change your own mind. And there needs to be courage because at the heart of this is the bravery to stand up for what you believe in, even if it goes against the grain, even if it's not exactly what your manager uh, requested or what your CEO envisions, there needs to be that, that courage. Um, and at the same time, the resilience to bounce back because rebel cultures tend to also have a lot of setbacks and be um, willing to deal with failures because they're, they're pushing, right? They're always pushing the edge. And so I think to build uh, that kind of team, things that I've really focused on uh, from a leadership perspective is encouraging questioning, encouraging exploration, both personally and within the team. Um, trying to encourage openness. So very open, you know, communications, oversharing as opposed to undersharing, making sure that there's a culture where different opinions are welcomed and debate is welcome, it's not shut down, and building courage, right? H how do you encourage your teams to take calculated risks and stand, stand up for what they believe in, what they think uh, might happen, even if some of those ideas are unpopular? How do you create the space? How do you create that psychological safety? Um, so those are some of the things that I think are really important to build Rebel Talent. What do you think is the largest differentiator in terms of the end product as somebody that's been a product manager, business leader, um, when when you see a team that has that rebel talent and rebel culture versus one that might not? What what do you think is like the, the X factor there? And, and clearly, I think the rebel talent, the rebel culture will always deliver a better product. But what, what do you see is, again, that that X factor? So there's one, there's one thing I've, I've learned in my life is that there's, there's never such a thing as one way is always the best way. It's very circumstantial and you need to understand, uh, just like in life, sometimes the things that are exactly my biggest strengths when taken to a limit will also become my biggest weaknesses. Um, and I think that's true for everyone. So even in the, in the case of Rebel Talent, um, in the best case, you're gonna build a team that drives innovation they will typically deliver new ideas, new solutions, um, think differently than how product makers have thought in the past, and, and they will be more resilient and adaptable to market changes, to business challenges, to business model changes. They will be more open. They will see things like AI and identify before others how you could use AI to change interfaces to change design um, methodologies. So that's kind of like a best case, right? That, that tends to be why change agents succeed. But there can also be, when taken to the extreme, um, situations where you don't want rebel talent. Uh, rebel talent can definitely cause friction and not all organizations are prepared to handle the disruption that that sort of team can cause. Not every business needs to be disrupted, needs to be turned around. 
um, needs to be transformed. And so if you create a team that's looking to challenge and looking to change in an environment where things are actually going swimmingly, um, then all you are really doing is creating fric unnecessary friction. So that's not always a good thing. So you have to know when and where to apply that. Um, there's also a risk of failure, right? With unconventional approaches comes the risk, higher risk of setbacks and failures. Not every company is in a place where they're ready to take on that risk. It might not be appropriate. And so typically when products, companies, organizations um, are dealing with more desperate situations, they're more open to change agents coming in because what has worked in the past no longer is working and they need someone to figure out what will work in the future. So really understanding that context um, helps leaders, executives figure out when and where rebel talent makes sense. Right answer, so many good nuggets there. And <clears throat> you got my mind firing on all four cylinders, thinking now about rebel talent, rebel cultures, and rebel teams within what, larger organizations. Can you maybe just talk us through um, what that looked like at, at Philips and Microsoft? My mind goes to, hmm, um, how did you create the the conditions for a team to all of a sudden feel like they could challenge and and kind of antagonize or I don't know if that's the right word but but um disrupt to disrupt yeah, yeah. And, and my mind also goes to like if I'm a junior if I'm like a junior engineer for example in a company and I get pulled into a, a rebel team um or if I don't yet have those enabling conditions, what are some of the tools or, or learnings that you've had that I can embrace within a company like that to affect change? Yeah, well, one thing I'll tell you is that um, it's very difficult to succeed as a change agent if the um, leaders who bring you in don't uh, have your back and give you air cover for the change that you are asked to drive. Because in every very large company, there's always a well-known concept of kind of uh, organism rejection. When you bring a new organism into you know, the, the body of that large company, there tends to be a desire to kind of reject the new. Uh, and so it's so critical to have leadership team. You know, in the case of Phillips, the CEO of the consumer business at the time uh, was an incredible uh, leader, uh, thought partner, and he gave me a lot of air cover. I was brought in literally as a digital transformation leader. And so my job was to help the different business units across the consumer uh, spectrum think about what does it mean to add connectivity? How does it change business models? How does it change relationships with customers, how did it change how you build engineering software? Um, so yes, there was many, many disruptions from financial disruptions to engineering. We went from waterfall to agile. I mean, just so many disruptions. Uh, but it, I could not have done it without the support of, you know, leaders around. <clears throat> mm -hmm. When that goes away and, and you don't have the right support 
to give you air cover, then usually it's, you know, quickly the company, you know, rejection organism will do its work. Uh, so that, that's really important. At, mm-hmm. at Microsoft, um, it was very interesting because indeed the consumer businesses were at a point where um, they'd been in decline for so many years, either flatline or declining for so many years that it was very clear something had to change. There was there was a little level of desperation of something here has to change. And um, there was an openness from that perspective uh, of people to break down silos, right? In large organizations like Microsoft, teams tended to be organized in these verticals based on whatever your expertise is, whether it was product vertical, like Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Outlook, or marketing versus engineering versus finance. Uh, We had to break, we really had to break that down and and bring people together to create um, user-centric design, to create product-led growth, go-to-market efforts. We created unified goals through an OKR methodology, um, where after you bring all of these interdisciplinary teams together, we unite them across common set of goals that are framed by, by user needs or business goals. And we measure progress with very tangible KPIs, which are directly tied to you know, things like adoption, conversion, retention, user satisfaction, things that really ladder up to business results. Um, so there was a there was a desire to change, and so I think there was a, there was more of a willingness there for people to come along that journey. Yeah, and what I particularly so, love about that is sorry, just one bow on that is what I took out of your explanation of that earlier on was removing the silos from a marketing engineering design to interdisciplinary smaller teams that were much more agile to to move quicker and and aligned around a common set of company objectives so that was that's what i thought was really nice you know great great um insight to add i think i think it is important i i will say you you talk about um having air cover which you know makes perfect sense for 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 you coming in as a rebel what about how can a leader like yourself uh, provide air cover for for others? You know, like in terms of what does that look like for junior, middle, senior directors that report to you? How do you create that rebel culture, that that environment that allows them to thrive, assuming that you have that air cover uh, above you to build that? Yeah, I think that kind of goes back to some of the things that I I said earlier, which is really creating an environment where um, team members feel that there is an openness, an openness of communication. So oftentimes uh, what I observe is, especially in large corporations, um, information can be seen as power. And there's not a lot of information sharing. Things are kind of kept in small corners. I think transparency is super, super critical. Uh, the ability to to help team members build their own courage, right? Encouraging them to stand up for their beliefs. Um, And a lot of that is recognizing and rewarding those behaviors when they happen, acknowledging, celebrating those who 
um, took a risk and did something that might have been unpopular or went against the grain to encourage others to do the same behavior, celebrating failures publicly um, because someone took a risk to try something, uh, creating an inclusive culture where different opinions and voices are heard. So, you know, there are many times when I would be sitting, for example, in, in large, very large meetings. Uh, mm. And it's amazing how many times women were spoken over in these large meetings. And so, you know, I make it a point to make sure that everyone, you know, other people had a voice that I felt were being, were being um, kind of stepped on. So, you know, doing what you can to, to make sure that there's space for different voices. And then also being, being open to feedback from team members, because I didn't always do it right. I mean, you know, I'm very assertive. There are many times where I didn't create the space that I should have for others to share their voice. So being open to get that feedback from my leadership team, from others around me, um, and showing that vulnerability is really part of the journey because none of us are perfect. We all, you know, uh, over vector at times. And so it's okay, have those conversations. And I think that's part of building courage, knowing that you can have that conversation with leaders. Um, I think all of that's really critical to encourage openness and adaptability and curiosity, of course. And occasionally swag, stickers, coffee mugs, <laughs> biggies, biscuits, free beer, retreat. retreat. <laughs> they go, yeah, retreats go a long way. I know they work well at, uh, at some of the companies we've worked at, but no, I, I yes. Yeah. Cultures uh, like building cred team credibility and cultural, like a real culture goes, wait, we, um, we said in um, the business as usual report, you know, gone are the days of ping pong tables, but serving as a, you know, a token of culture, workplace yeah. culture. You said that yourself, you know, when COVID happened, you know, the companies that really did have a, a core cultural fabric to look after their team kind of rose to the, to the top uh, and the ones that didn't, you know, you saw kind of the great resignation. So super insightful stuff. So Liat, from this rebel spirit that you have discussed just previously, is there any advice to startups or businesses of any shapes or sizes um, that is possibly changing in the coming five to 10 years? Yeah, I think I think AI really is the transformational force right now that um, leaders, change agents, rebel talent should be keeping a very close eye on. I know everyone's talking about it. I speak to a lot of CEOs uh, on this topic. But the question that I hear them ask most often is, how do I use AI? And I think mm. that's not necessarily the right place to start. Um I would encourage everyone to start with the biggest, most urgent problems that they have, not the technology, because AI is a tool. It's not a solution in itself. The most successful AI implementations solve very specific, well-defined problems. So my advice is to clearly articulate the problem that you're trying to solve before diving into AI and then ask, can AI accelerate? the way that I solve that problem. Can I solve it cheaper, faster, more efficiently by using AI? Um, 
it's most important to make sure that you're solving the most critical business issues at hand rather than just using technology for the sake of being cutting edge. So that's like mm. the first piece of advice that I would give. Um, related to that, data is your foundation. AI is only as good as the data that you run it on. So the quality of your data is going to significantly impact the performance of your AI models. So I really encourage teams to invest in collecting, cleaning, managing, thinking through their data strategy, whether it's your own data, your buying data. Um, think about data governance from day one. That is the baseline for any AI strategy. And, and ethical AI has to be a non-negotiable, right? AI systems will increasingly impact human lives. So ethical considerations like fairness, accountability, transparency, equity, it has to be paramount. Um, I would I would therefore advise that as you think about your AI strategy or data strategy, ethical considerations have to be part of your development, their development process. It's not just the right thing to do. It's just really good business sense. I think consumers are going to be much more focused on this, just the same way that sustainability is a bigger discussion for consumers today, too. So, you know, I think any anyone that wants to be on the cutting edge really needs to start thinking hard about where is AI going? How can it transform this industry, this product, this business? How could I rethink my business models, my engagement models, my interface models because of what generative AI or other forms of AI can bring to the table? I love that. And I, th I love starting with a problem, not a technology. That's a very user-centered design kind of methodology and perspective. Um, that's something that we we do on every project, we usually start with what is the core problem that you're trying to, to address and then build the solution out from there. And then if AI can plug into that, which it increasingly is showing tremendous promise on, then we adopt. But yeah, I love that answer. Thank you. So Liat, from growing up in California as a young girl, learning some incredible um, stories from your from your grandmother about resilience and 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 sticking through it it's really set the arc of your phenomenal career and uh really set the foundation for being a, a rebel and which has proved to be wildly successful for you so what for anybody listening what do you think the the sort of core dna is uh, that that maybe they can take with them if they're sort of stuck uh, from a you know personal perspective or stuck inspirationally uh, and they're looking for a, a, a change of pace or maybe uh, a, a new identity uh, what 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 would you say is sort of the the building blocks of that rebel character that uh, that they can start with to to move forward in that direction I made a promise to give voice to the voiceless and to stand up for what I feel is right. And so whether the, I'm in a business meeting and I have a different point of view on where the technology is going and what our strategy should be, or I have a different point of view on product vision, um, I 
share my opinion, you know, not a, not in a confrontational way, but uh, in a way that hopefully will also bring others along. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, I've always had the courage to speak up. I encourage others to to find that within themselves, and was born to do to to, to give voice to those who maybe don't have a voice, because you will change a lot of lives when you do. Um, I think that's probably one of the most um, amazing and unexpected impacts that I've had in my in my career is how I've impacted others when I didn't realize it. Um, they've shared with me, you know, after the fact, um, mm. but it's a very, it's very rewarding. And so I think everyone just needs to, you know, really follow what they believe is right and stand up for it and not be afraid and not feel intimidated for all the designers that are listening. When I think about the opportunities ahead, you know, design really isn't about just making things pretty. It's, it's the future of how we interact with the world. And right now, AI is slowly eating every piece of software and inching into every industry. It's affecting how we interact with tools, how we interact with devices, and the world around us is changing because of AI. So I think the opportunity right now is for designers to help shape this change. Think about how interactive design, how UX and UI fundamentally changes when AI is at the heart of your pro product. I think, you know, how we think about websites and mobile apps and new screenless devices can fundamentally change. And that's a huge opportunity for for designers to help lead the way. If you want to continue the conversation, share your thoughts, or suggest topics for future episodes, be sure to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and LinkedIn at PlanCo, or visit planco.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, keep playing, keep designing, and keep pushing the boundaries of what's next. This is Play in Conversations, signing off.